Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan. And today I've got a fabulous guest for you and I think you're going to really enjoy her thoughts and what she has to say. She has an unusual personal story which she uses to inspire and motivate others. She chose to forgive the two men who gang raped her at the age of 13 and she shares her story for many, many reasons. She wants to end the shame, stigma and silence surrounding sexual violence, enabling others to find their voice, whatever their story is. She wants people to know that it's not what happens to us that is important, but what we do with it. She will show how changing her mindset tapped into her resilience and transformed her life, making people question their own thinking and encouraging them to see that there are always choices to make. And if we choose to, we can get past anything that happens to us in our life, both professionally and personally. She wants to encourage others to live their life courageously. She wants to inspire, hope and show people that we are so much stronger than we actually think we are. Please welcome Madeline Black. Madeline, how are you? Thanks, James. I'm good, thanks. Lovely to be here with you. No, it's great to have you on. It's a hell of a starting story, that one. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've just got a quote here, which I absolutely love, which is from you, which says, we are not defined by what knocks us down, but we are defined by how we get back up. Absolutely. And it's actually kind of synchronicity that I'm speaking to you today because yesterday was Holocaust Memorial Day and I, you may not be aware, but my father was a Holocaust survivor and he was my greatest teacher and he loved life and showed me, yeah, we're, we're not what happens to us. We can all get past what happens to us. Well, my, my grandmother was in, in Auschwitz from um, for four years, so she was... So I'm a grandchild of a Holocaust survivor. Okay. So it's I'm a second almost generation nice. survivor, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, the world is full of horrible things. Um, but you've been through one which, you know, I you would never wish on anybody. Take us back in time a bit. Tell us a bit about your story. Well, yes, as you said at the start, it starts when I was thirteen. I had a friend at school. We both did what most normal teenagers did. We planned a night out without telling our parents where we were staying. Her, her mum was away, so we lied about where we were staying. We stayed at her grandma's. We were meant to be at her wow. grandma's, and we stayed at her mum's empty flat. And we managed to buy a bottle of vodka. Uh, I was obviously never drunk before, half the size I am now, and it didn't take me long to get drunk. Uh-huh. We were in a local cafe and we were then kicked out and two of the young men from our table took us back to her mum's empty flat and it just became clear really quickly that they weren't there to let me sleep off the alcohol, you know, take me out of the clothes I'd been sick in or put me in the bed to sleep it off that, you know, it became very clear that they were there for something else. 
And at 13, you wouldn't have a clue what to do with that. No. And when I fought back, the violence actually escalated. So then I just went into freeze mode, which is there's very loads of different ways to respond. And I just thought it's just easier just to let them do whatever they want and just get it over and done with. Well, I wasn't really aware. My body just took over when the trauma came in. Sure, of course. And and you you held this secret for years and years. I did. Well, I didn't go public with it for years. Some people knew, but only a few people, but they didn't really know all the details. You know, really, it was my shame that silenced me. And shame is such a hard emotion to walk through because I really believed that people would see me how I saw myself for years, which was worthless and dirty and contaminated. And I thought, or my shame told me that they wouldn't want to know me. But my shame robbed me of years because you have to really step into your shame to be able to get rid of your shame, if that makes sense. And once I cracked the shame, I don't care who knows anymore. It feels there's more of me has shown up. There's more of me that that the shame held back. And is that because you thought people would think less of you? Absolutely. Well, we live in a society where there's so much, you know, victim blaming, rape culture, what mm. were you wearing, what were you drinking, what did you expect, all of that. And it's such a personal crime against a body that we just, or I could speak for myself, I just turned it internal. Sure. And what made you become, what, what made you go public with it? What what changed? Yeah, it was a gradual thing. Um, I was contacted by the Forgiveness Project, which is a project in London, and Marina wanted to share my story online. She collects stories of forgiveness on her website, as well as lots of other important work that they do. And I was just tired of being ashamed. I thought, why should I be ashamed for a crime that was committed against me? I've got nothing to be ashamed about. It took me a long time to get to that place. And Mm -hmm. I decided to share my story publicly. I'm not saying that was an easy decision. And I'm not saying I wasn't terrified when I sent it out to the world. But it's been the best thing I've ever done. When when well, let me just step put my teeth back in and step back a second. You talked about the forgiveness project and forgiving the men who did this to you, but listening to stories like this, it, it's very difficult to understand how you can get to a position where you can actually forgive someone. You mentioned the Holocaust, uh, you know, and with with the seventy fifth anniversary of, of the liberation of Auschwitz this week, and um, you know there are many many survivors from from that experience who have found a way to forgive the people who perpetrated those crimes. But how do you do that? How can you forgive such an evil thing? Well, I never set out to forgive them. I was full of hate and anger and revenge and plotted fantasies in my head to get back at them, really to put them through what they put me through. But then I saw, holding on to all that anger, they have no idea. It was only harming me and my husband and my kids that I struggled to have for years because I thought giving birth was going to be like being raped again, but I reversed Mm -hmm. that decision and have three gorgeous girls. Um, But it really, it wasn't an overnight thing. It was a process. During my last lot of therapy, my eldest daughter, Anna, turned 13, and my memories just came flooding back. Very near to the end of those three years, my therapist suggested to me that maybe they weren't born rapists. And that just sent me on this journey of inquiry. You know, I really wanted to understand what, how could they know to be so violent towards someone else? Because they weren't much older than me, maybe 17 or 18. 
And I really believe that we are all born equal, that we're all born a blank sheet. Um, my friend Anne, who is a midwife, told me something years ago, and I always hung on to it. She told me that she delivered thousands of babies and she'd never met an evil one. And I, I do believe that we're all born the same. So I wondered what they had seen or heard or experienced. And somehow I started to feel compassion in my heart towards them because they they have to live with what they did to me. And I can't imagine that would be easy. But forgiveness really was, wasn't, it wasn't for them. It was for me. It had nothing mm -hmm. to do with them. It was a decision I could make internally inside my heart. And it allowed me to let go of the negative feelings that I felt or the hate and the revenge. And it allowed me to accept all that was done and just let it go. So is that a process that you forgive yourself first? Absolutely. Just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and being a naive 13-year-old. But I, for years I blamed myself. I thought it was my fault. Well, goodness, so if you you know turn the clock back, the, some of the things that we do as children are, are completely ridiculous because we're children. Absolutely. Um, and you know, putting yourself into that position, well, did you? No, of course not. It was just a set of circumstances. But um, but I, I love the position you've got to now. What I, 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 I'm fab fascinated by the strength that you found within it, but also the the passion to help others. Yeah. What what do what are you doing now? Because I know once you'd gone onto the the Forgiveness Project website, all sorts of things started to change for you, didn't they? It did, yeah. It just opened up these doors, which I didn't really imagine <laughs> would open to me. So people invited me to share my story and uh, I went to share my story. And so many people, every time I speak, will share their story with me, maybe not publicly, but in the break or at the end, they'll ask me some questions. And I just saw exactly what Marina, who is the founder of the Forgiveness Project, meant when she calls us story healers rather than mm -hmm. storytellers. And I believe in the, the narratives, our healing narratives that come from when we share our story. You know, somebody hearing a story at the right time in their life can completely set them onto their own healing journey. And I just really now, I don't speak out for me anymore. I just speak out for others and what it can do for them. It's an interesting phenomenon, I think, where you where you start to share a story of your own, and other people come to talk to you. Are they just people who've who've experienced the same kind of sexual violence, or are, is it other kinds as well that come to talk to you? All kinds. So I was lucky enough to have done a TEDx in June last year, and just yesterday I had a message from someone because at the end of it, it's about letting go, and he said, mm -hmm. "I realise I've been holding on to all this anger about a business deal where somebody scammed me for years, and I've I saw what you can let go of." He said, "I've got to let it go. It's damaging me, and you know my mindset's awful." I never intended that, to, you know, to reach a person like that. You never know where the ripples go. So on the whole, it is people that have experienced sexual violence. But, yeah, we never know where, where the ripples go when we speak out and who hears it. When, when you talk to these people, and I know that resilience is a word that comes up when, mm -hmm. when people mention you, what does resilience mean in that context? Well, I don't really like to think that I'm superhuman or don't have any superpowers. I think we are all can tap into our resilience. You know, we're all so much stronger than we think we are. And it just got to a place where I just, I guess it got really stubborn. I just refused to be dragged down by my past or identified by what had happened to me. And I was just determined to live my life as best as I could. And like I say, my dad was a great teacher. 
he lost his parents, his brothers and sisters. His youngest brother, Mordechai, was just six when he was gassed. But I saw that, you know, if he can get past all of that, having your whole family murdered, surely I can get past this as well. So he really helped me a lot by how he lived his life. The stories that come out of out of the show or out of the Holocaust are, are unimaginable. Um, when you talk about a six year old being murdered, um, most of us get you get a, a tingle in your spine of just almost disbelief. Um, and but then you know you you see the strength that comes from someone like your father, like my grandmother, like the like anyone who survived mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And we do look to them and think you must be stronger than than a normal person. Do you, do people have that attitude to you? There must be something special about you that makes you strong. They do. They think I'm brave and courageous. And yes, it. it I guess it took a bit of courage to start with. But I don't want to be considered brave. I want it to be normal that we can speak about the difficult things. That you know, people should be disturbed because it is disturbing that everywhere on our planet, somewhere, a man, a woman, a child will be abused or raped. We need to find a way to stop this. So I don't think I am superhuman. I think I've just tapped into the resilience that's within all of us. We can all find our strength and our courage. But how do you do how do you find that resilience? How do you how do you find the courage to to be bigger or better or different to how you have been? I always, I don't like to call it stepping out of my comfort zone, but stretching my comfort zone, just challenging myself. When I saw really, because fear was my friend for years, you know, fear and I just walked side by side for a long time and it really held me back. I was scared of everything. Everything I did came from a fear place. And I saw that fear was my imagination. You know, it was all based on what had happened to me or all based on what could happen. So I set out to challenge my fears, which were mainly my safety, being around men, being out of control. And I put myself into situations that would normally I would never have done. Um, Lots of different things. And that really showed me that, yeah, we make up a lot of stuff. <laughs> we, it's, our, it's our negative chatter internally that can run the show. And we have to sometimes not listen to our mind. So you worked as a psychotherapist for a very long time, and I, I understand you, you've stopped doing that recently, or you've, you're certainly doing less of that. Has that helped? Being a psychotherapist? Yeah. Yeah, well, I understand trauma personally, and I understand it professionally. I know, you know, biologically what it does to us physically. And yes, it helps. And yes, it doesn't. Because when all my memories came back, I just refused to believe them. Now I can see I was caught in denial. My therapist said didn't come anywhere near to my own, my own journey. I was just went to my own therapist and was complaining and moaning for years that this couldn't have happened. If I if it had happened, I would remember it, you know, if it was so bad. But as a therapist, I understand our mind shuts down trauma and it comes back when we, when it thinks we're ready to face it, whether I agree with that or not. So it was interesting that all my training just went straight out the window and it was personal. <laughs> well, it's, it's very, very difficult to look at ourselves, isn't it? Or, or certainly at the depth that you need to. Um Obviously, you've gone through something, which I said before, you know, you would, you'd never wish on anybody. Yep. Most of us have had something go on in our lives. Everyone has a story to tell. We all do. Uh, yeah, in business, though, um, you know, you mentioned that, that, that example earlier. Sometimes the, the choices we make or the things that we shy from are much, much smaller or, or may feel a little bit less important. 
Um, are there lessons that that people can draw from your experience in in what are sort of more normal issues in life? Absolutely. So really, I share my story for anyone to really be able to find their voice, because I think when we don't find our voice, we really hold ourselves back. But if we can speak whatever it is we have to speak, speak our truth, then we really do stand in our power. And as I've said already, we can, we're all stronger. We just have to believe that and tap into it and find a way to access that strength within. So what are some of the ways that people can do that? Well, I really had to see what I was doing. You know, we get so caught up with whatever we're doing that it becomes automatic. So I put myself into these situations that would have terrified me. So I was terrified of the dark, so I would start running in the dark. I couldn't even put my wheelie bin down the end of my garden if my husband Stephen was away. I went to my first karate class at 41. I... Because the night it happened to me, I also left my body. So I had to find ways for me to get back into my body. So I've used sport a lot, um, Mm -hmm. but also lots of different types of therapies and finding my voice, speaking out, um, stepping into that shame place has been the only thing that's cracked my shame. For people who who are hearing what you're saying, um, with with those tribulations of life, how do you step into that sort of thing? How do you decide, right, I'm going to f- take this on. I'm going to find the courage to to face these fears. Yeah. Do the very thing that you think you can't do. <laughs> Put yourself into situations. I mean, I decided I would never become a mum. Um, when I met my husband, Stephen, he was fine with that. And then he asked me, we'd been married a few years. And I just thought, if I don't do it, then they've won. I'm handing them all my power and control over me over to them and they've got no idea so I there was something in me that always drove me to clean up to eventually face everything that I had done so I guess it it does take courage to really look at the things that we don't want to look at and we all know what they are we all push them out of our consciousness but they're always hovering in the background things that aren't processed or aren't cleaned up and so yeah by stepping into the things that terrified me is actually what grew me but when you when you say that, I mean, it's it's much easier to say than to do to do the thing that you're scared of or the yeah. thing that fears you. Um, what what help did you have? So much help, <laughs> so many help, and ironically, most of the helpers have been men. So it's men who very nearly killed me, and it's men who've really saved me. So uh, yeah. I went to talking therapy. I've had lots of different kind of alternative therapies, lots of body therapies. I've seen a a shaman, I've gone to a teacher for many, many years, for about 15 years, and he, Imaho, was the man who encouraged me to write my story down. And I said, no way, there's no way I'm going to let you read it or anyone else read it. And it took about four years for me to write my story down, and he shared it at one of his seminars, and then he asked if he could share my story. And I allowed him, it took me a lot of courage to allow him to do that, And what I didn't know was that he also let people read what I had written. And I thought I could never come back. I was so mortified that all these people now knew. But I thought that's that's the shame again. It's easy to run away. So I went back to another seminar, which was in Cork in Ireland. And when I walked in, I just felt so exposed and vulnerable, as if I was naked. And I thought, well, they can't know anything worse about me now. And that really helped to, that's when I talk about stepping into the shame, it was just one of the examples how it helped to just crack that shame that had held on to me for so long. What I also didn't know was that he told everybody 
to leave me alone, to show me some respect, not to speak to me about it. So when I walked in, everybody kind of walked down at their feet and nobody said a word to me. But near to the end, it's a four-day workshop. People slowly started to share their own stories with me or share incidents where they were they couldn't forgive or they couldn't let go. And then I got more evidence of how powerful it is when we share our stories. And from that, it led on to me writing my memoir, Unbroken, uh, I just decided to write all of my story down one day, and all of a sudden it was like 70,000 words appeared. So Goodness. I know, it's putting it all down on paper and publishing a book, is now my story's gone out there now, and I really don't care who knows. And I will be contacted every day by a reader or someone that's heard me speak somewhere. So I just see the, you know, the power that comes when we share our stories. Were you surprised by how normal people were when you told the story were you expecting them to treat you in a certain way that they didn't yeah I thought people would be disgusted I thought they you know they wouldn't want to know me but what I'm learning sadly is my story is so common you know it's so so common and I may be fortunate it was only a one-off event I've met so many people that have read some chapters for example I, I write about three other times when I was raped as well which I didn't really realize until I wrote the book more what we would call date rapes and it's not about comparison because all rape is a violation mm. but one woman told me that uh, she would wake up at three in the morning with her husband having sex with her and I would say but that's not sex that's rape if, if, you, if you've not consented that's not sex you, you're not an equal partner and that you know there's no consent that is rape and she'd never looked at it like that she thought that it was a normal part of her married life that he would just take it whenever he wanted it whether she was awake or not Right. I mean, I, I'm absolutely flabbergasted when I hear that. I think, you know, but then then you hear, I mean, and I don't mean to laugh, it's just, it's the surprise in me, I guess, that I that someone would treat somebody else as a chattel rather than a, than a human being. So many people are treated so badly by so many other people. And I, but I really do think that hurt people hurt people. So I'm. Another reason why to share our stories is that, you know, so people connect to their own stuff and realise that they can heal themselves as well, whatever their story is. There's a lot of talk about um, about the reason behind, reason why people commit crimes. And often you, you mentioned it sort of, it's come from a previous experience of mm -hmm. theirs. Is that a cycle that's that's breaking? Is that a cycle that's getting better, or is it is it still the same problem it's always been? It's really hard to know, isn't it? Because of Me Too, so many people shared their story in the social media world, especially on Twitter. So right. are more people speaking out now, or are more people reporting, or is it getting worse? It doesn't feel like it's getting better, to be honest. Sometimes I wonder if it's it's not that it's not getting better; it's that more people are talking, yeah. and so the you know it's like the, the the people were talking about the recently speaking with people about autism, and that that cases of autism are increasing. Well, they're not, but diagnosis is increasing. Yeah. Um, and I think if, if with something like this, perhaps if um, you know if if there's more and more cases be coming to light or more and more people sharing the experience, the negative experiences they've had, that that's a good thing. It is that a it's good thing. That it's bringing it to the open. So the stats will be higher, but the, the social change is bigger. Yeah, we need, we need to really shift this mindset that society has, the rape culture, the victim blaming. You know, when somebody goes to sit as a member on a jury, for example, we can't be naive to think that that jury isn't 
persuaded by thoughts that they've really brought in. All the victim blaming, it stacks up against the person who's been the victim. You know, we can't be naive to think that they're not thinking, oh, well, what did she expect? She was drinking. She went out up to the hotel room, blah, blah. We're influenced by all of these messages that we're fed and in our music and in our films. It's, it's everywhere, victim blaming. Music and film, you mentioned there, because a lot of a lot of there's some very violent um, messages that come through, and video games. Mm-hmm. Is 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 that something that needs addressing in society? Yeah, you know, I was I do a lot of radio shows, and I was speaking at BBC Radio Humberside, and there were about four people in the studio. One of them was a vicar, Vicar Becky, and she told us that she goes into schools, and boys as young as eight years old have access porn on their smartphones. And I was really horrified, eight years old. So there, a lot of young people are getting their sex education from porn and they think it's normal not to kiss a partner when they're having sex or for that partner to be crying as well. So, yeah, there's some need some serious education out there. It's Sorry, I, I've gone quiet because I'm thinking about my children and their smartphones. My daughter's 11 and she's mm-hmm. just got a smartphone for her birthday and, um, you know, it's all been very exciting. Um, and, you know, the first thing we did was, you know, before she was given it, was mm-hmm. it clamped it down. You know, mm-hmm. you set everything so that um, so that she hasn't access to different things and, you know, if she wants an app, we have to agree it. My, my son's 13 and he's... Um, you know, we've been through all that with him, but he can't access that sort of stuff. It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me wonder what parents are doing when they, or a kid's just so smart they can get around these things. Yeah, or some parents maybe aren't as tech savvy as you are or don't even think about that possibility, you know, maybe a little bit naivety, but or they look at it as someone else's phone that doesn't have the strict settings. And, and you mentioned pornography there, and, and people's sex education from f- coming from porn. I mean, that that just fills me with horror uh, because, you know, as a, as an adult, you look at that sort of thing and think, well, if you choose to watch that kind of video, that's your choice, but it's not real. Um, but eight year olds don't know what's real until if they're shown something, they just expect it is. Mm-hmm. That access to porn must have changed um, a lot about the way society works. Well, we have this powerful computer in our hand. You know, most people rely on their phones even for business. They'll do all their posting and emails from their phone. And so it's it's a very powerful thing. Uh, yeah, I was really shocked when I heard that statistic. I didn't think it was as young as eight years old. It really shocked no, I'm, me. I'm, I'm really surprised because I'm not sure what an eight-year-old wants with it anyway. Yeah, um, it, even if they don't understand the porn, it's the message that it's degrading women, basically. Mm-hmm. That's really what it's about. The degradation and the messages that, that they're picking up from it, it's really appalling. People cry out about, you know, any kind of – any any kind of negative thing in the press or anything in, in on social media, whether it, you know it's racism or sexism or, or whatever it might be, but the porn industry seems to be almost allowed to sort of run free. What? Why is that? Oh no, there are anti-porn sites, and there are a lot of people trying to end the the demand prostitution. There is a lot going on. It just, I guess, it just depends where you put. Your attention. There's there's a lot of links to porn and sexual violence. No, I just I, well, obviously I well not obviously, but I, I I clearly am not searching for the right stuff, mm. or maybe I am searching for the right stuff. Um, 
what do, what can what can parents do then? So looking at your at your kids as they're growing up, what can we do to help them be better and broader and more rounded individuals? Yeah, I think really that parents, schools, nurseries that we we need to start educating our young people from a very very young age about consent, and I don't just mean within a sexual relationship, but consent about is it okay. Would you like to, you know, because I was forced, you know, to go and give my grandpa a kiss or my grandma or this auntie yeah. to check with your child, you know, if that's okay, if they want to do that. We need to teach them about respect, what a healthy relationship looks like. And I think that will be a way forward because we don't, we, we're not really taught these things. But consent in all issues is so important. I just, I, you know, you've just, you've, there's a lot of things you've said that have sparked my my, my mind and, and drawn back memories or made me think of different things. But I, you know, I, I remember very, very clearly going to see my grandparents and having to give everyone in the room a kiss when yeah. I went to bed. Yeah. Um, and it, it never struck me till now as perhaps that wasn't a good thing. Yeah, sitting on um, Santa's knee. I mean, really, do, do, do most children want to do that or they're just forced to go and do that? Oh, my, my kids wouldn't go near Santa. <laughs> I thought he was the most frightening looking thing, yeah. much to their mum's dismay. To me, it wasn't such a problem but she was really disappointed. But that's great that they trust their guts and trust their instinct. And I think that's what we need to go back to as well, to learn to listen to our bodies, because we often get the message that this doesn't feel quite right, but we're polite. You know, I'm British, so we just go along with stuff as well because we don't want to be appear to be rude. But if we really listen to our gut and our instincts, our body, it often gives us warning signals that, you know, this just doesn't feel okay. Yeah, I mean, you say British, and there's obviously a cultural element to a lot of this. So, a, a girl I went to university with was from Singapore, and uh, and she never went back um, after uni because the culture around her family there was such that she didn't feel she could have a voice. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, you know, how often we we make excuses for ourselves. Well, it's you know, it's so British, we just don't say these things, and 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 actually, no, we should. We should absolutely. Look, it's great chatting with you. I'm so so delighted you've made able to take the time and to to come and talk. And I'm really really pleased how well your speaking career is going. And what I'd love to do, I'm going to put a, a link to the TEDx because I think it's an incredibly powerful uh, powerful few minutes of talking. Um, but also to Unbroken, which which is is the the book you released oh, it's a few years ago now. Yes, yeah, uh, three years ago, yeah. Three years ago. Well, so it's not so long after all. But uh, um, Madeline, I'd love you to leave our listeners with just a thought, a big idea, a golden nugget, something that they can do now um, to make their lives better for today but also better for the years to come. What would that sure. be? Sure. So, um, you know, I'm always looking for evidence of why, I'm, why I speak. And I was given – some massive evidence. I was very lucky. I was interviewed by Sir Trevor MacDonald. And to cut a very long story short, my friend's mum had been listening. And basically, she ended 64 years of her silence after she heard me on the radio that morning. And my friend said, she, every chance she would have taken her story to the grave with her. So I would like to say to anyone out there who's listening, whatever their story, it's never too late to find your voice. It's never too late to go and get some help, get some support for whatever the issue is, because it will hold you back from living your fullest, most courageous, bravest life ever. So find someone to speak to. It doesn't have to be a therapist. Find someone that you trust. And if you can't find someone, tell yourself your story, write your story down for you. But you need to shift it to change the energy inside and break your silence. Perfect. Perfect way to finish. Thank you, Madeline, so, so much. You're welcome. 
I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the Only One Business Show, and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts. And in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.